Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, Stomping Jen. Yes. Episode 90 of the Soft Serve Podcast. Oh my God, 90 episodes. I'm really excited. We have an amazing guest with us tonight. It is author, director, content editor, and creative director, Eric Shapiro. We're going to be talking to him and asking lots of questions about all of the stuff he does. So without further ado, I give you the Soft Serve Podcast. Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Okay, Stomping Jen. I am your host, Sawtooth Frank, and this is the Soft Serve Podcast. And as I mentioned, we have an exciting special guest with us tonight, Eric Shapiro. Author, director, content editor, and creative director of the Milpatist Beat. We need to get the pronunciation. Yes, we will ask him now. <laughs> we want to say hello, Eric. Welcome to the Soft Serve Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's thrilled to be here. That, that truck is kind of creepy, isn't it? It is very yeah, super creepy. I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's uh, it's Milpitas. Yeah, which... Yep. Uh, Milpitas. Yeah, yeah. Milpitist. Um, and what is a Milpitist, if I can ask you? Good question. Good question. <laughs> there's, some, uh, indi- there's some indigenous uh, interpretation. It might mean land of cornfields. I should know that since we run a newspaper here. I, I think that is the, uh, the uh, translation. Is it, a, is it a place? Is it a geographical area? Oh, it is. It is. It's a city right next to San Jose, California. It's a Silicon Valley city. It's known as the, the gateway to Silicon Valley. So it's like... Um, it, you know, it's, it's one of the first access points when you're going to, into Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of technology companies and, you know, uh, innovative people and working on all kinds of newfangled stuff. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you. And I just wonder, oh, likewise. I gave you kind of a very general introduction, but I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to say by way of who you are and what you do. And this is an opportunity for you to Put yourself out there and promote yourself. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. It's hard. You know, it's interesting because the Milpitas Beat, the newspaper, so I co-own it with my wife. My wife, Rhoda, was the founder of it, and we've been in business for a couple of years, and uh, we had an opportunity in our city to start a paper because the local coverage was kind of dropping off. We have a paper called the Milpitas Post, but they kind of switched to regional coverage, so there wasn't as much like homegrown coverage in the sense that they're watching 
city hall or the school board or just doing profiles of people and businesses and you know following the schools and, and youth sports and all these things or opinion editorials all this stuff so she saw a gap which is what uh good entrepreneurs do and she she was uh ingenious that she saw a gap like knew there'd be an appetite if we started generating our own news and she was already a journalist and she recruited me i had had a long career as a ghostwriter um and she recruited me to help one of her selling points was to telling me it would be an alternative newspaper like it wouldn't be state or bland or corporate like we would have some fun it would be colorful um just you know give a jolt of of, of energy and, and stimulation conversation to the city and uh it really has worked like on any given month we have uh on our website usually around 30,000 unique visitors and it's gone beyond that dur during COVID because you have uh mm -hmm. people that are looking for that sort of information so um it's been really exciting so it's also helped like usually when I get that question it's hard for me to to brand myself efficiently because I've I've dabbled in so many kinds of things but uh the newspaper has helped um sort of individuate me and like um pin me in a sense that like I became known in that context for my opinion editorials which are I don't want to use the word provocative. That's not really the, the intention, but they do stir up conversation locally. And, and a lot of it has leaked outside Milpitas. We've got like regional attention. And uh, it sort of clarified my entire career because in my books as an author, usually what I'm doing is I'm writing in the first person as though the character is me, but it's not me. It's like a fictional other dimension version of me, which is like what Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson did. So I was like, oh, this is interesting because I never really was really into journalism. I had more been a ghostwriter uh, in terms of my profession. And um, and it's sort of like pinned everything together because there's a sustained audience for it. And uh, it's grown and we have reporters and we, ha we have, you know, staff members and things like that. So that's what keeps me busy day to day. But I, I do have at any given time, there's, you know, stuff I'm pushing as an author and there's always film projects I'm in on. So it's just it's always kind of a, a mishmash of that kind of stuff. Yeah, you mentioned ghostwriting. For people listening to this, they may not know exactly what that is. Could you talk a little bit about what ghostwriting is and how you got into that? Oh, definitely. Um, I first got into it in 2002 because uh, out of college, so I graduated from college in 2000. Then in 2002, I wrote a short story collection called Short of a Picnic. It was um, 12 different uh, short stories, and each one was about a different mental illness. Um, and I got a publisher for it, which was exciting. This was before the, the age of uh, DIY content being fashionable, like self-publishing was very frowned upon. So I, I fought to get a publisher. And, mm -hmm. and ironically, since then, I've taken most of my backlist and self-published it, or, or as they, a lot of people prefer to call it indie publishing, so it's not as stigmatized. But <laughs> right. at that point in time, <laughs> at that point in time, um, it was, you know, the whole thing is like publishing was not credible unless you fought. So I got like 150 uh, rejections and I got two publishers that were interested and one of them made an offer to buy it. And uh, they published it. They were in Washington state. They sort of came and went uh, pretty quickly um, and weren't really in as good health as I thought they were when they signed the book. But it was really cool to get a publisher, um, but it didn't make a lot of money. I mean, it only sold X amount of copies. It was very fringy. It got really positive reviews, which was very encouraging. And the reviews kind of made me think like, okay, I could justify doing this professionally, but I, I'm not making a living off this book. And I was very naive about what that would look like commercially in advance. And of course, how hard it is to market things. And I was a kid, but I was kind of like, um, I, I, I was in the spot where I was, uh, how old was I? Like 24. And I had a publication at, at a young age, but I couldn't leverage it into income. So I heard that ghostwriting uh, was a way to make money. So ghostwriting is... Um, 
in a nutshell, just writing content and other people put their names on it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if, if somebody needs a speech or if somebody wants their life story, a memoir, or a lot of times it was script doctoring. So somebody would have a draft of a screenplay or maybe an outline and I would either write it or I would, um, or I would just do, you know, punch up the script or polish it, just stuff like that. But my, it was never attributed, but it's lucrative. Like they pay you uh, usually a flat fee or maybe there's an installment plan and they, you know, they pay you a handful of payments mm-hmm. to, um, to just ghostwrite their work. And uh, it was kind of, it's kind of a good deal in the sense that what I learned very quickly doing it was I never cared. The first people, uh, the first question people asked me with ghostwriting is how I felt about not getting credit, but I never cared because it it wasn't my content. In a lot of cases, I would not have wanted my name on it. Like not, not that I thought it was bad. Like I did my best to make it good or to help them make it come out good. And sometimes I even liked the ideas, but they weren't mine especially if it's somebody's speech or their life story. Like I just felt there was no, there wasn't enough of an out and out creative connection. Um, and I did that. I made my living doing that. Um, it was, it was kind of, it was ghostwriting, you know, scripts, memoirs, speeches, business plans, resumes, um, and a lot of editing, rewriting, proofreading, all kinds of documents. And, uh, my partner, Michael, who was the, the marketing end of things. And I, we were in business from Oh two to 2018. Oh wow! Uh, and, I, and, and the business still exists, and he's one of my longest uh, non-blood relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like him, but I just got really burned out doing it. I mean, yeah. I was writing like um, twenty-five hundred pages a year; like it was insane. Like, uh, and even now, like my back, my back uh, still, you know, is feeling all the work I did. My wrists, like a lot of times, um, I think I was doing this with you, Jen, before we, uh, as we planned this. Like a lot of times, people will type to me through a messenger app or whatnot and i'll respond with a voice memo because mm-hmm. my fingers hurt like it's like ridiculous yeah. so <laughs> eventually even though i'm doing journalism now it's a, it's a much lower volume of uh content i can give more love and care to each thing i'm doing so so a lot of my career like how i've made my living paid my bills and you know fed my family has been ghostwriting for most of my adult life aside from the past two years where it's been the milk yeah i i, I yeah. can relate to that feeling of burnout i was a professional medical writer for 11 years oh wow and I, I, I churned out enormous amounts of content and it just, it just, you know, it just really runs you through the ringer, like you yeah. said, physically and mentally. Oh, it's crazy. And when you say uh, medical, the medical content, was it like articles or what sort of writing was it? Yeah, we did um, pharmaceutical training. So, you know, pick a drug, we would do the um, background training on the anatomy oh. and physiology, the drug pharmacokinetics, uh, the treatment. And, you know, we would write, it was not uncommon for me to do a couple of like 300 page learning systems a year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, that's insane. Like, yeah, so you totally relate. I mean, um, something my wife and I are simultaneously realizing, like, I always knew it throughout the ghostwriting because I was not only just writing, but I was closing clients and I was negotiating contracts. I was doing accounting. I was doing taxes, like keeping our business licenses updated. Like I was running the whole apparatus. I had a really confusing schedule on top of it. And something I learned with her, because when the paper started, we were both doing all the articles, but we subsequently... Um, hired some reporters and we realized that in the the workflow that you and i are both describing with this is like hundreds of pages a year it's real heavy um and the, the newspaper doesn't really quite lead to hundreds of pages but it's a lot of intensive research and fact checking when you're doing articles or editorials we realized that um you can't run a business like you can't think clearly when you're writing all the time like right. uh, you become very myopic and you're just focused on tiny details and like it's hard to strategize and grow the business and plan for the future, um, and be more macro if you're constantly just sitting at a keyboard. So right. yeah. Um, so around the same time in the past six months, we've been like, 
all right, our goal is to stop writing. And we're both professional writers and we're both uh, skillful at it and take pride in it. But on the other hand, like I'm at a point where I feel like I've just blown myself out, like uh, just way too much of it. And it's like, um, uh, I, was there, I was reading Miles Davis quotes this morning. And one, one of the ones he said that really uh, uh, struck a chord with me was that if something becomes too clean and polished, that means he's been doing too much of it. And I just feel like, uh, yeah, like cleanliness, like a certain pristine, um, refined quality crept into my prose, which is great. It means I've grown. But on the other hand, it's like, all right, what do I do now? Like, I have to back off because it doesn't feel new to me. I'm not hungry yeah. for it. I'm not excited about it. So it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. And you mentioned your first collection of um, stories focused on mental illness. And I noticed as mm -hmm. well your new, um, I think it's your newest novel, Red Dennis, also deals with themes of mental illness. So I wanted, Definitely. I wanted, I wanted to ask you if that, if that's a pervasive um, theme in a lot of your work, and if you have experience with that in your personal life. Definitely, you, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to talk about both. Um, in terms of the theme, it's interesting what I was saying a couple minutes ago about branding myself. Like I always felt I was all over the place with genres, and like you know, I had that uh, kind of connective tissue of always being the narrator, like, or, or the narrator is someone in my voice or some alternate dimension version of me. So that kind of put the books in a uniform style, that, the ones mm -hmm. under my own name. But um, I always felt like, okay, now I'm doing sci-fi, now I'm doing horror, now I'm doing literary fiction, now I'm doing a thriller. Like, I always felt like I was all over the place. And I, I always, of course, just wanted to do what was exciting to me. So I didn't want to overthink the market dimensions. But as time has gone by and I've accumulated more books, I realized exactly what you were asking. Um, that madness is the unifying theme. It, it, it's, a, it's amazing that it wasn't. It's amazing it wasn't more obvious. I, mean, I almost feel like ridiculous that that didn't stand out. Like uh, if you go book by book, short of a picnic is overtly madness. Um, then there's novellas. Like I have, and I won't go title by title, but we can get more into them as we talk more about it. But uh, there's an apocalyptic novella which, by design, is made to like evoke a panic attack. Then there's uh, a sci-fi novella that's also like about a guy that doesn't really have a handle on what's real. So sort of like schizoid or paranoid or schizotypal. Or, um, and then um, there's uh, another novella called Strawberry Man, which was kind of, uh, um, it's all, it, it was written way before the Me Too movement. movement. It was written in 2006, mm -hmm. but it's like about all the Me Too stuff. Like he's a, a businessman, he's a corporate guy, he has too much power, he has too much privilege and entitlement, and he abuses a woman, he's addicted to strippers. And I also had like, and on, on the addicted to strippers note, like I have another novella that's all about a sex addict. And I have another novella that's all about a suicide cult. So it's like, it almost like, as I put them all in one, like these are spread across like years, but as I put them all into one efficient list, it's like, oh yeah, I always write about mental illness. And now with Red Dennis, like it's more like uh, um, psychosis, like he's homicidal, he's radicalized, um, he's incredibly narcissistic, entitled, and and all that stuff. And uh, in terms of my own experience, um, I was diagnosed, this is why Short of a Picnic, the story collection was the first one. Um, so I was diagnosed with OCD and ADD when I was 18. Okay. And, um, and that was definitely, the, the years from like 18 to 19, was definitely, I always describe it as like a before and after marker in my timeline. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like I absolutely had a nervous breakdown and I was absolutely in an incredibly severely dark place, particularly with the OCD. Like the ADD side has not been something that's been as acute or as apparent to me consciously. Like uh, um, not to uh, undermine it because I know people suffer with ADD, but uh, for me, the OCD, which was characterized by intrusive thoughts, intrusive images, um, just 
just getting stuck on a thought. Like I always describe it as like in The Shining when they cut to the two little girls like out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what it's like. Like, uh, or, or at least for me, like uh, suddenly an image of the most depraved, amoral, horrific sort of thing will just flash across your mind. And simultaneously to doing so, it'll seem kind of gentle and peaceful and ethereal, which makes it a hundred times more horrifying because okay. it seems like it's of a piece with you. Like that you're like, Hannibal Lecter, that you're just completely fucking depraved, and right. that's why these thoughts are, sh- are, are are coming online. And um, so, in the course of getting diagnosed and figuring out what was wrong with me, like of course, like initially, and this happens to a lot of OCD people, um, you think you're psychotic, like you think you're going to act on these thoughts. So, in researching and figuring that out, like pre-internet days, like uh, first year of college, so '96, so there was an internet, but like it hadn't like t- tidal waved everyone. Like I was, I remember I was looking at like physical encyclopedias to try and match my symptoms to things, and I learned a lot about all different mental illnesses. And I've also been, um, I've kind of checked out of Western medicine around this because I've had more help with alternative stuff, but mm-hmm. it's also been implied, sh- short of a diagnosis like i've also been told i'm probably bipolar and at a certain point you know i I just think you know even though there's three designations across what i have or or, or may have um it's just all one thing it's like one storm system of it's just my metabolism it's just the way i'm wired but yeah i've definitely been dealing with this stuff uh, for about half my life and do you and have you consciously taken on these ideas when you're working on a novella or a story or do they do they just kind of work their way into the the subtext and the 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 DNA of the stories because they're your um, lived experiences? Um it depends. Like it, it's a little bit of both. That's a really great question because I'm I'm like going through them one by one. Like uh the conscious intention has varied per project because i would say in some of them um it's a more exaggerated version of my own experience um like for example you know somebody being a member of a suicide cult like i've never been in an environment like that like i i had to research it and read about it and and just you know uh uh read a couple books watch documentaries and just tried to get a feel uh for that sort of environment the mind control and the brainwashing so i could depict it Mm-hmm. And uh, the challenge with that one that made it fun was the narrator in that one. Again, like I always have the starting point of using my voice, but it always develops into another personality based on the circumstances around the character. But um, what was fun about that was trying to depict somebody who's brainwashed and then slowly uh, snaps out of it uh, because he, it's the last day in the life of a, of a, of a cult and they're going to kill themselves at like 6 p.m. And he realized he starts having second thoughts. Like he just can't do it. I mean, he's at the knife edge of his mortality. He's just, he can't do it. So little by little, he starts like, you know, hearing from the other voice that, that is telling him just snap out of it. And uh, not in as literal ways, I just said it, but in in gradients, he sort of comes around and and start goes into a state of revolt. And he like recruits other members of the cult to work with him. So that was a fun one, but it was so at odds with what I've experienced. Whereas uh, the short story collection was more like literary naturalism, less like genre driven. So it was more grounded and probably more straight out of things I've experienced. So it really, it really varies. But uh, um, I would say overall, though, it is strange the, to the extent uh, to the extent that uh, madness has always come up. That really did sneak uh, sneak up on me because uh, I just realized it's kind of a preference in the sense that I don't like. A narrator, whether I'm a writer or a reader, I don't like a narrator that's too level-headed or sane or even particularly trustworthy, like, uh, just in terms of, I don't mean, like, whether or not they're a liar, but just in terms of, like, there's, it's usually more appealing and sexy to me if there's something erratic about them 
and even they might be a really good person they might not be like in red dennis i don't think he is but uh um but their morality and nobility uh can be there and that's fine but um in general there has to be something that's kind of hyperactive or manic or charged about their mindset Cool. And thanks for, sh- thanks for sharing, you know, your own experiences. Oh, um, oh we, thank you. I love talking about it because I, I feel yeah. like people don't enough. So yeah. Yeah. And we definitely on our podcast try yeah. to destigmatize, um, you know, mental health issues. You know, yeah. I, I, I have issues with, you know, um, chronic anxiety and mm, yeah. that sort of thing. And we talk about it a lot um, and we always have. So oh. thanks. Thanks for sharing. Oh, um, thank you. And thank you guys for doing that. I mean, destigmatizing is so important. I felt, I feel like, uh, I would like on nine 11, so many people like were new to anxiety, post-traumatic stress, depression. I feel like it, it came online as more of a cultural conversation at that point, but I still feel like there's such a long way to go. Like there's so yeah. much that's not understood about it. And there's so it, what I find particularly annoying, you can tell me your, uh, your own experience around this um, is every single thing I do can be conveniently attributed to um to my mental illness or, or illness is plural, like, which is so annoying. Cause like, if I make a joke, that's uh, particularly cutting or extreme or quote unquote insane, that doesn't mean I'm doing it because I'm symptomatic and I can't help myself. Like that's right. ridiculous. So that, that drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, my, my experience has always been, and it wasn't until I was in my, I think late twenties or early thirties, I was diagnosed with um, generalized anxiety and catastrophic thinking and and i was always as a kid told you know oh you just worry too much you're a worrier Mm -hmm. there goes there go there i did it i i I doxed myself (laughs) i I doxed myself um um, you know um but you know there goes sawtooth um you know with, with his his worrisome thinking and I always just took it for granted that yeah. that was that was just part of me, and it was something endemic to me. And and it may be in a part, but what I learned though is it is treatable and it's right. manageable. Absolutely. And I and I could recover my life in a way that made it ma- more manageable. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Thank yeah. you for taking it there too, because I. Uh, it's interesting because I like I said I had a year and a half where it was very dark, and I subsequent to that after I did alternative healing stuff, I actually did stuff that I. Uh, for the light of like, like nobody could have convinced me that this would have ever worked. I tried psychology, I tried medication, I tried homeopathy, I tried all different things, but uh, it was actually energy healing that got me out of it, which blew me, blew my mind and changed my life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, uh, it, it really soothed me. And, um, and I, you know, it's something I can turn to if I need it, but I was really like 95% better uh, for almost 20 years, like until uh, 2016, I had a relapse, like a bunch of things happened at once. My wife lost her father. We moved a couple times in a row. Um, we had our third child. Prior to having our third child, my wife had had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Like all these things happened in a very uh, quick succession, uh, narrow time frame. So um, it all came came back. I was like, oh my God, I never expected this to come back. But as you said, I mean, it is treatable. And like, thank God that time, the second time, I had measures. I had things I could turn to. Mm-hmm. I had to kind of jog my memory. As it's not like I'd forgotten, but and uh, and it's certainly not like it's something I don't talk about. But I had to be like, wow, I actually have to return to like going to yeah. see a healer every week, maybe twice a week. Like I actually have to reorganize my life to heal myself because it's, this is not going to go away on its own. But uh, yeah. as you said, you, you can it can be treated, can be lived with. And uh, what I find interesting about it is even when I'm feeling well, the like you said, you use the word endemic, like. There's still an aspect to me that ha- that that's 
operating on the quote unquote illnesses level, but it just doesn't feel bad. Like it's not a bother. Like I'm, right. I feel, uh, I feel chill about it. So it's interesting how there's a splitting that can go on. It's like, yeah. it's all in the way you're kind of talking to yourself about it. And if you feel soothed, then that mentally ill dimension is not going to like have sharp things and destroy you. It's just like, you're like a Jedi and you're able to kind of keep it in check. Yeah. You can recognize it and acknowledge that it's there, yeah. but without exactly. allowing it to take over and like yeah. drive the decisions that you're yeah. making in your life. Oh, 110%. Yeah. Yeah, um, backing up a little bit, Eric, did you always want to be a writer? Was that something you had on your life map? Um, sorry, that's a really good question. Um, it's such a strange one for me in the sense that uh, my mother, who's a really talented artist and sculptor, she always in- encouraged my sister and I to be very creative. And uh, she was never um, stern about it, but she wanted to like sort of give us that option when we were little. And she got me writing when I was really little. So I have a really strange relationship to writing. Whereas uh, other things I've tried, I've also done a bit of acting, uh, but I never really pursued it professionally. Uh, But when I moved to California, acting was the thing, which is interesting because acting is in so many levels similar to writing, uh, at least in the way I approach it. Like, you know, I think they're both first person things. It's just one, you're using your whole body instrument with the acting but with the writing it's all being funneled through a keyboard but uh but i think there's amazing amounts of overlap in the way i approach those but um uh she was always with the writing she always encouraged me to write stories like she didn't like hearing the word bored in the home and again she wasn't strict at all she was she was a lot of fun but she was uh she was like don't ever say you're bored it was a button for her she's like yeah that means you're just boring i hate hearing that just find something to do. And then that for me was usually writing a story. So that's been going on since I was like five. So it's really like a, a gift she gave me because I have no memory of getting into it. Like it's, yeah. it's crazy. Cause I just remember like being in junior high and having a couple teachers being like, Oh, you know, you know, you could be exceptional at this. Like you should, you should hang on to this. So it was weird how that developed. Whereas with something else like filmmaking or acting or even journalism, which has its own you know, mandates and, and code of ethics and its own approach, or, you know, there's certain kinds of writing I've had to get acclimated to. But when it comes to fiction writing, it's like, I was just like, it's almost like being one of those kids that was put on the basketball court and just like, just, you know, told like, this will be valuable if you can learn this. And I really don't have any recollection of um, getting acclimated to it, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is kind of weird in a way, because it, it makes me feel like I'm at a remove from it, it feels very natural. It kind of feels like talking and I've certainly been able to make a, a living from it. So that's why it's a great gift. But there is something like in the sense that when I came to acting and I started playing with it and I you know, felt myself growing into it and, I, and you know, making certain stylistic determinations, uh, it was more tangible. And I can remember all that happening because I was like a late teenager. So it's a really, it's kind of a strange thing. But uh, in terms of the life map side of what you asked, um, I would have to say no. I, I, I probably would have more thought like, uh, and this sounds so naive in retrospect because it's so competitive, but I, I would have probably more thought like acting or like, um, and then I even, like I'm real entrepreneurial. So there's certain business thing, like the dimension of my map where I've we've developed a couple of businesses, uh, my wife and mm-hmm. I, my partner and I, um, has definitely been a, a very big part of the journey um, in terms of creating businesses and that being another creative process. But I would say writing kind of snuck up on me. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Now, do you, uh, a question I had is, did you read a lot as a, as a child? Do you continue to read a lot? Oh, absolutely. Do you have favorite writers? Oh, absolutely. Um, As a kid, it was uh, tons of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And my older son, Benny, who's going to be nine this summer, um, he just read all the Harry Potters. I guess Mm -hmm. there are what, there's seven of them. 
Um, there's like and he, seven or six, nine. Yeah. Eight, yeah. And then there's seven, Fantastic Beasts also. <laughs> yeah. And then the movies, I think there's eight movies and seven books, but he just went through those like crazy. Yeah. And uh, I, I have to read them because I want to see, like, I want to find out what he's talking about. And, uh, um, but I can't wait for him to be old enough to at least try Stephen King. Because uh-huh. King for me, yeah, growing up for me, that was like everything. I mean, uh, I must have, had, I think now King has like probably 60 novels or something. I, yeah. I probably growing up read about 25 of them. Like I was always, really into them i loved it so that was a big deal when the movie came out uh but ironically now that i have kids like i never saw chapter two i heard it wasn't so great but uh, it was a real big deal to go see chapter one yeah. um and i was a huge stephen king person and uh now yeah it's one of my favorite things to do i'm constantly reading and i i love um an author i always like to uh talk about because nobody recognizes this person as an author is eric bogosian um who's more known for his plays like uh he wrote Talk Radio. He wrote Suburbia. But he wrote three novels that I think are absolutely amazing. So uh, um, his, his novels, I think, are like some of the best stuff I've ever read. We'll have to check those out because I love both of those movies. And I want to say my, my, oh, skin, nice. yeah. my skin started tingling for you <laughs> because when my, when my son read The Stand and I got to <laughs> talk to him about the stand and, okay, and yeah, as he's yeah. working his way through the dark t- tower dark novels tower series, yeah. that is just i i think i dreamed of this moment i'm, I'm getting chills just thinking about yeah, this. I yeah, mean, like, yeah 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 I, I could like start weeping like yeah. how old is your son uh, he, ju- he just, just turned 13 just turned 13 oh, okay yeah. oh that's like so did he start this stuff within in the past like year or so yeah and yeah. that's okay. I, that's when i figured i started it and i turned out well, okay-ish it so. was funny because he like he like begged us to read Sh- the shining yeah for like oh, okay, a year okay. or two <laughs> and finally like we started like opening last summer we like opened up the stephen king like vault and we're like all right you need to start with like some really like really mellow stuff like some of the dark tower stuff but then he read it okay. and it was sort of out of order now yeah. he's reading the okay. full Dark Tower series, and it, it's oh, nice. making much yeah. more sense. And what he's what him. he's done is he's gone back at my recommendation. He started reading through in the order <laughs> of publication that King okay, okay. that King wrote the stuff. So, anyways, yeah. I'm super excited for you. Oh when that my moment god, comes. Thank you. I'm so excited for you that he's gone. Like I, I have yeah. a, a good a good amount of waiting ahead of me, yeah. and I'm hoping he gets into it. Like he's very. Um, like, I can't, I, I have a feeling he will because it's fucking Stephen King. I mean, you can't, like, you know, that's like, it's unlikely he's going to be like, oh, this is an unpleasurable experience. But uh, but he is the type that will say, no, this isn't for me if it's not. But uh, yeah. um, it's interesting how we also, the three of us are close in age and we're all Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. And right. um, it's, it's interesting. I'm wondering what parents and subsequent generations, like, feel about this. Because for me, there's no taboo as long as like he's at of a, like you know 12 or 11 or something like i i really am not terribly concerned about language or violence like i'll i'll be able to have a sense of him as an individual like how well he can handle it and yeah. um I, I feel it was kind of positive that my, my parents never regulated that very much with me in terms of movies or books like they uh <laughs> So I, I don't I don't know if it contributed to making me insane, but, but I, I, I definitely felt it was a lot of fun. So. Well, we definitely so so um, we have a ten year old also, so she's okay, a little okay. bit behind, uh, but she likes a lot of dark stuff. So we draw the line pretty much at like sexual stuff. I think at this oh, that's point good, good in their yeah, yeah. in their development, but like you know, she's watched Stranger yeah. Things the entire thing. Okay. She loves it. We let her watch PG thirteen. Yeah. Um, stuff. Oh, nice. yeah. um, but you know, we always insist on the uncomfortable 
parental teaching moments if yeah. the, you know something flashes by that we need yeah. to address and the yeah, other oh, thing absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing i will say eric is that uh we talk about this a lot too on the podcast like there is like 80s pg and 80s pg 13 which oh is my god yeah like well now. said yeah 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 so what was we, it it was um Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, just we have to be really careful because the things we remember very fondly are turn out they're not so yeah. Oh, great yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's really interesting because I know there was always like when we were growing up, I think even within the realm of PG, there was always a couple uh, mm-hmm. quintessential breast shots, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, you were allowed to, I think you were allowed to say the F word once in PG. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting because they created PG 13, I think, for. Um, temple of doom i think that was the turning point <laughs> because yeah. it was like kind of borderline they're like all right we need we need another and of course spielberg had enough uh, muscle where they're like he's like you're not going to put an r on this thing so, <laughs> yep. so they, they found a different way but it, that was the era where it was actually being upgraded so it stands to reason that yeah like that that there there, there was definitely like a shift over time yeah so one thing i wanted to ask is do you think about now do you think about maybe writers that you um, looked up to or idolized back when you were mm-hmm. young or before you became a writer, do you think about them differently now that you are a published author as you're, Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 Oh, very good. You're, I love your questions. Um, first of all, I want to say, cause I'm going to forget to say this. I think it's uh, so amazing and adorable that you guys do the podcast together and your parents <laughs> like, and, and I love, I also, my wife and I, like you were resonating with me on the King thing. My wife and I always do everything together. Like I take her to meetings. She takes me to meetings. Like, so I think that's like the greatest thing. That's awesome um to create stuff together and now i have to now i have to oh you asked about uh i was gonna ask you to repeat the question you asked about how i feel about authors now that i i am one um yeah yeah i'll tell you what i'm I'm gonna blaspheme i can't read king anymore like uh there's certain and i I, it's mostly become nostalgia for me i think he he, he's a brilliant storyteller brilliant ideas like ferocious ferocious imagination um one thing i'm gonna and i'm saying this with full awareness that i'm one one millionth as well known as him and like i'm infinitesimally smaller entity than he is like i have i have utter sobriety around that but uh it seems to me like as i've gotten to know the medium more like his stuff could stand to be edited a bit more aggressively like the editing seems a little shallow like it seems a little flabby um and i gotta tell you something else this i don't think this is a blasphemy i think i've uh encountered uh fans that feel this way when he's um richard bachman Mm -hmm. he is incredible like it is just like he is because he's so lean, mean, and on point, and he's also kind of like abrasive. Like, whereas King, as King, is kind of a romantic and more you know light versus darkness. Bachman is just mm-hmm. like fuck you. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna cave your head in. And I just yeah. like I, of course it's personal taste, but I think like as Bachman, he was pulling on a certain extreme of discipline that he doesn't always uh, he doesn't always rise to. Um, so that that's where I don't feel like it's a loss. Like I still love him. I I'm still like a super fan, but it's more nostalgia like i can't pick pick up his new books and pretend i can get into them it's just like um i feel they're a bit uh, bland on some level like the conversations go on forever so that was definitely a huge shift and uh also just fiction in general is hard for me to get into like i i which is weird because i still write it and a lot of fiction writers have this paradox where uh it has to be like unbelievably stimulating because uh the space that it used to fill in our culture um, and movies too, or even well, TV shows are, are more fashionable right now. But uh, social media has like uh, taken over everything, and it's so addictive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, in order to read fiction, it has got to be insanely stimulating. Yeah. So, um, and that's why I said Bogosian's books are like incredible. Like I read each; I could not stop reading. They're so uh, compulsively readable. Like I like uh, 
I think that's the bar you have to pursue. Yeah, that, that's the, a good point. I do find that's interesting. You know, like um, I would say the the book that ruined Stephen King for me, Which right? Was okay. What was Cormac McCarthy's The Road? Yeah. I I, oh, okay. I I read The Road and um, like you were saying, um, Eric, about lean, mean, and on point. Like mm-hmm. it's something about McCarthy's um, prose is just yeah. so stripped down. And, oh and my it, god, it's it, so poetic. Yeah, and I just I've had a difficult time getting into fiction since that ten years ago. Yeah. Like, and that 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 book for me, that novel for me, was a stake in the ground about. <laughs> just how beautiful writing could be. Yeah. And I, I don't know. No, no question. Yeah, it's an absolute masterpiece. I mean, uh, yeah, and he absolutely, he is a no, he is a novelist of the highest conceivable caliber. I mean, he's just amazing. So, yeah, and, and also, like, you know, people hear that sort of praise that you and I are giving, and they, they think it's like, being forced to eat asparagus but it's not it's just as yeah. it's just as suspenseful and exciting as king but it just there's more of a sense of sensory absorption and and refinement and like it's just it's just more like a fever dream and um it is to i hate saying this to you know <laughs> i was just gonna call him uncle stevie like stephen king like uh <laughs> like it's it, it's a shame but uh it is kind of like the difference between like fast food and fine cuisine to a point. Um, yes. And I'm not saying Stephen King can't get there because I've seen him do it, but that's not the level he holds himself to. Um, and I got to tell you, I've been published in anthologies um, a couple times where King material has been in there. And I want to say flat out, so I'm not like, so the, so the note I, I, I uh, accumulate to isn't disrespectful. Those are the, like some of the biggest accomplishments, accomplishments of my life. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's like being asked to play on stage with Dylan, you know, like, yeah. uh, it's just like, so, I mean, he definitely is, I mean, he's amazing, but, uh, yeah. but I also think, um, just like you're saying, the reason I almost started weeping and I was like buckling with chills, like hearing your son is getting into it. If you catch that wave, in your adolescence or your teenage years, I think it'll have the most impact. Yeah, yeah. And for yeah. and for the record, I don't think you're coming across at all as disrespectful. So I, I don't oh, worry. Don't worry, about, yeah, yeah. don't worry Stephen about. Stephen King that. is going to listen to this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for saying that. There is a level of blasphemy as long as I call it blasphemy. Well, I, guess I, I think I think yeah, yeah. I think we are New England's best podcast. Yeah, so yeah, maybe there's a chance. Come on, you know, um, you're you definitely. I got to tell you, this is definitely one of the fastest. Like it feels like it's been a. I know it's been like uh, 40 minutes or something. It feels like it's been like three minutes. Yeah. That's all uh, we're coming a testament up. to how it's stimulating your questions. Well, thanks. Um, we're, yeah. we're coming up on 40. Um, one thing I, I have to ask you, um, sure, is sure. writing for the screen different than writing for print? And can you talk a little bit about that? I know you've, oh, definitely. you've written yeah. a lot In of screenplays. Mo- yeah. Oh, no question about it. Uh, 100% yes. Uh, the most nuts and bolts answer to that is uh, the words per page is a lot lower. So uh, I would say in a screenplay, you've got like 150 words on a page, whereas in prose, it's usually 250. And that allows you to move to speed way faster through your workday. And I find um, screenwriting is way more fun. It's like, it's just like, it's probably the most fun form of writing because it's just action and dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I'm very... Uh, spartan and spare and minimalistic with with prose or screenwriting but screen screenwriting by its nature is more minimalistic so when i'm in that zone it's just um it's it's like sheer joy it's like uh the fewer words i need the more like the faster i can move and i think i feel in my perception the faster the piece moves as a result so um yeah it's a total blast whereas prose does feel more like i always have the objective when i'm working in prose to make it as propulsive impossible i want it to be a page turner right and unashamedly like i of course wanted to have literary value i want it to have like a certain fine quality of its language and, and it not to just be 
you know, like meat and potatoes. But on the other hand, I, I, I absolutely don't want people to be able to put it down. Like, and I, I, I know there's a lot of people like I, I took writing classes with at Emerson that would absolutely turn their nose up at that and think like, as a matter of fact, even somebody like Cormac McCarthy, who, who's, um, who I, I personally find his stuff hard to put down, but uh, he will sort of relax his gear and he's almost like a painter where he'll, he'll slow you way down mm-hmm. with his prose, like yep. to a, a standstill, then he'll ramp it up again. But I'm sort of, I'm, I'm too neurotic in the sense that I, I definitely go populist when it comes to pacing. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I try to have the same propulsion with prose, but of course I'm dealing with more words, A and B, I have to do everything. Like I have to paint the entire environment. Whereas with a script, it's a blueprint for something else. So there's more, you know, you more feel like it's like a map and you have more freedom accordingly because this is, okay, here's the thing we're going to follow if and when this gets shot and it's going to be altered and they're going to put more, you know, coloration, detail and layers and texture into it. But this, you know, a really well-structured script will really, you know, carry your story. So it's an exciting thing to work on. Yeah, and do you do you also direct the films you write? You do, right? Um, yeah, I've yeah. directed a few, and it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up directing because that's yeah. a dimension of things where uh, I really would rather not do it again. Like, there's um, uh, and and I feel like uh, yeah, just as I've gotten older, yeah, um, I feel like I'm I'm adequate at it. Like, I feel like I'm uh, I can I can bring a solid product out. Like, I don't think I'm bad at it, but uh, I just feel like I'm more of a natural as a writer, and I feel like the outpictured world has given me that feedback over and over again like if you if you put um all my book all my books in a like thermometer metric their scores would probably be in the 70s to the 90s Mm -hmm. like if if you just put all the types of reviews and feedback together but if you put my movies in they'd probably be in the 60s or 70s they're more hit, hit or miss love it or hate it more of a solid conservative aesthetic and uh it's more my fantasy to just write the script and have a really strong crackerjack director coming into it Uh, but i have directed a couple features and a bunch of shorts yeah yeah i have to say i really enjoyed living things so i wasn't oh thank you oh thank you so much and i thought your i thought your dialogue was really great in that that you wrote thank you i appreciate it yeah a a huge amount of credit to your partner um rhoda i think you got um, it you got it yeah every, every, a lot of people say Rhonda, so thank you uh, oh is it it's it's it's, no, it is rhoda. it's rhoda okay oh, it is rhoda. Okay. you got it right you Woo. got it right yeah um yeah <laughs> i thought <laughs> thank you thank you because <laughs> uh, i don't i i think i think um lesser actors would not have delivered that as well and what what i was going to oh. say is i was when i read the description of the movie are you I, talking about living things or rule of three uh living things i watched it are you watching yes it? Um, you watch it? today oh you um, watched it without oh, nice. yeah nice. um <laughs> I wasn't expecting a horror movie based on the description, but as I got mm-hmm. into it, I realized it was a horror movie because it is <laughs> yeah. about um, a woman who is trapped with her in-law yeah. and alone in a house, and she has to have a conversation with him over dinner yeah. about their different ideologies around meat. Yeah. And like I began to say to myself as I was watching this, like, this is a nightmare scenario for me. Oh, this, yeah. is a horror, this is yeah. a horror movie. So yeah. what I wanted to ask you was, were you thinking about that is a horrific scenario no, as you were writing no, I, it. It's so funny. I, oh my, I, uh, I'm going to have to force myself to stop uh, praising your questions. Cause you're, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I go like every time you ask one, I'm like around the band, I become, I'm getting romantic, but uh, okay. Yeah, no, this is very exciting uh, to talk about this. Um, the answer is no. And I, what I, what I kind of realized just like the madness theme found me yeah. over time, I realized I kept pulling it. Um, the, your genre kind of finds you too. If you just consistently write things you find stimulating and the first time we screened it, a bunch of people, we screened it for like 50 
friends and relatives in LA when it, when it was finally presentable. We just had a, like, it was kind of like a casting crew party, but we invited uh, our, our nearest and dearest to watch it. And so many people said it was a horror movie. And then I kind of had to parse that a little bit because already by that point, I, if I was known for anything, I was known for writing horror. Right. So I was kind of like, uh, well, you know, they could be projecting that, but I absolutely, I don't think they are. I absolutely think you're right. Like, and it's, it's been repeated over and over. And it is like, I think your genre, like every genre is basically an emotion. And basically the emotional key you write in, if you're true to yourself, is just basically a representation of your metabolism. So I, and I, because, um, you know, you and I have in common anxiety, like, because I'm an anxiety person, there's usually an element of suspense, an element of dread. Um, <laughs> and, and I really thought I was writing just a drama satire. Like I really, and then so many people have said like, no, this is not only is it a horror film, but a lot of people have said it's like the most unpleasant thing I've done. Like it, it's just like the noose keeps tightening. And, uh, and I also have to tell you, um, it is based emotionally, uh, and, and, and I, I emphasize the word emotionally because it never became contentious in the way it does in the movie between us at all but certainly my feelings about uh rhoda's father my father-in-law who uh uh passed away five years ago rest in peace he um we certainly had a, a a difficult time at a lot of points and um i definitely felt i knew that emotional environment because of our relationship mm -hmm. uh, but i would say if i did a more um a more straight up like documentary version of him and I, it would be more like meet the parents. Like, I think there was a, a warmth and a playfulness to it, yeah. but underneath that, underneath meet the parents is definitely a lot of pain, dread, fear, judgment, and, you know, clashing value systems. And for sure, like I was expressing that. And he, he actually really liked it by the way. He, uh, mm -hmm. oh, good. <laughs> uh, he, he, loved, he read the screenplay and he, uh, I think he liked the screenplay a bit better because by the time he finally saw it, uh, you know, he, he knew it. He knew where it was going and everything. But uh, he, he definitely appreciated, of course, you know, his, his daughter's biggest fan, everything too. So he loved seeing her act in it. But uh, he was sort of um, put on, put under by it, but he knew that was a positive thing. He was kind of like, wow. Like yeah. afterwards, he was like, they just had nothing in common, did they? Yeah. Like, uh, and he was like, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, uh, fun times to go into that emotional spot. And absolutely, I think uh, it's one of those things like i thought i was being like arthur miller i thought i was just doing a drama mm -hmm. and then there i go and i make a horror thing and there's no <laughs> there's scarce violence in it but they're yeah. talking about meat so that makes it kind of violent mm -hmm. like in terms of the ideas being thrown around so it's just it's unbelievable how it just comes through yeah well i i really enjoyed it i have to say that oh, thank and you i so want much. to thank encourage you. our our listeners to go watch it it's called living things oh, thank you. um what is it like to direct your partner and wife in a movie is that hard as a director easy oh not at all no it's easy it's easy um, um she and i um our tastes like you know we have uh, we're naturally being you know uh long-term partners we have a lot in common but we have areas where we're not you know we're like any long-term couple we, we definitely have areas and axes upon which we don't agree but, but we generally have very similar tastes in terms of movies and tv shows like it's almost like we're like an old couple by now where it's like if we're watching something without a word we can turn to each other and we both know if the other thinks it's great or if it's terrible. So um, that has definitely tied into our own creative process with taste. And like, uh, she has, um, I couldn't, I could not ask for a bigger fan of me as a writer. So she has the utmost uh, respect for and faith in the material when she comes into act. And then, um, um, yeah, I, I really don't. Uh, and this goes for pretty much all the actors when I'm directing, I, I use very few words. Like, it's just like, uh, maybe try it this way. Uh, maybe she's a little more irritable, maybe slow it down a notch. It's like, I don't get into long discussions with them. And I try and bring in actors that are extremely talented to begin with and, and just go with the notion that they're 
judgment and interpretation and choices are probably going to be better than mine. And uh, usually that's a winning strategy with directing. Like, uh, and a lot of directors that I like, like uh, Clint Eastwood or uh, even Spielberg or Scorsese, like they, it's the same thing. Like even at the highest level, it's like they bring in really good people. They might give them a little note here or there, but just just allow them to feel their way through it and you're in your shape. Yeah, and I notice you use a lot of the same actors in, in your projects. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific reason? Is it just you, you really like directing them? They're representing something in your, your mind about the characters? Yeah, I mean, it is that. It's definitely both those things. But I would say the key word is, uh, is trust. I mean, like, because yeah. you know... Um, you know they're going to show up prepared. You know they're going to be respectful. You know the day is going to be easy. They're not high drama. Like, and I really like the set to be, you know, a happy, warm place. Like, I, I, I think there's nothing to be gained from having a set that's antagonistic, or the director's a bully, or a taskmaster, or even, or even uh, terribly serious about what's going on. I feel like uh, if you schedule it properly, you have your money, you, you secure your budget, the script is tightly structured. Like, you can go enjoy yourself. Like, you don't have to act like it's like you know, like a, a huge deal. And I feel like if that's the environment, um, usually the, the actors and the other artists, like makeup artists, cinematographer, even the sound people, like I think everybody thrives within that. And I try and keep it very chill. Um, uh, so it's generally the actors that did repeat um, are usually the ones that not only um, have, you know, have my trust and I know they're going to help it stay chill, but they also tend to appreciate that environment, that sort mm-hmm. of hands-off touch. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to be respectful. I know we're coming up on almost 50 minutes. Sure. Um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm way into it. We can, we can, oh, okay. Going. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. so one thing I want to ask, um, I'm going to geek out on you a little bit here. Um, oh, so I, <laughs> we watched mail order right after okay, we watched yeah, yeah, rule yeah. of three. Okay, I okay. could <laughs> not help, but in my mind connect the character in mail order the, and I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, right? Um, but, okay. um, was there an intentional? Were, are they the same character? Could they be the same character? Oh, the, you're talking about you're you're obviously talking about the um, the lead guy in Mail. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I would say it's so. It, um, uh, I have to like smack myself so I can stop praising your questions. It's getting embarrassing, but uh, it is very <laughs> astute. It's astute, like in the sense that, like I kept saying, he's very oh, analytical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. We're like soulmates. Um, the, uh, the, um, when I write uh, uh, a protagonist, like I was saying yeah. before, it's like me, but then the circumstances are different. So it's not quite me, right? It's like an yeah. alternate dimension, just like Hunter S. Thompson. It's like it's him, but it's kind of a persona of him. And then, of course, there's a whole new set of, there's a whole new scenario. Yeah. So that's going to bend the character more. I would say it's more like that. It's yeah. like it is, okay. it's like, it's like him. Um, of course, the themes in those two pieces are very similar. There's a lot of yeah. o- overlapping emotional territory. So, but it's like, yeah, it's like I don't want to say that guy again because I think there are certain distinctions. But yeah, it's like it's like here he goes again, sort of thing. Like yeah. it's almost like Pacino or De Niro playing cops or gangsters. It's like yeah. you know, of course, the, the respect respective cop or gangster can be a different personality, but of course, they're hitting certain emotional notes that you want to expect that you, you come to expect. And of course, with that particular actor whose name is Michal, like he wasn't. Terribly, terribly well known, but uh, it was that same sort of ethos. Like, yeah, yeah we, um, yeah. And I, and I, and I was so um, relieved at the fate that the ca- that character suffered in mail order. I was like, I felt oh, like yeah. it was, I felt <laughs> like it was the comeuppance for what happened in rule right. of three. In my mind, I drew maybe You're it's because percent right. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, I want to say was a re- it was a reversal. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I loved about mail order, uh, or sorry, uh, rule of three, I have to say is. Okay. 
at the end scene of the movie, there's this reveal um, mm. that that very last scene, a package arrives in the mail. They open mm-hmm. it, and it made me completely rethink uh, almost every character's motivation from the beginning. Oh, nice! And yeah. I've been I have been thinking about it actually all day. Really? And, oh, wow. and, and reinterpret oh, and you, reinterpreting some of the performances, especially of the mm-hmm. uh, of um, uh, the the father character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Did no, you, thank you. Yeah. Thank, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say that I, as I was watching it, I was like, wow, why are I just I couldn't quite put my finger on it until the end of the movie. That's like, yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Um, Is that um, your intention okay. with the movie? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Rule of three. Well, First of all, I should say, first of all, I should say that um, Rhoda, my wife, uh-huh. um, who, who also is one of the central characters in Rule of Three, um, wrote the screenplay for Rule of Three. And I came up with the story. Okay. So that was very much like as time has gone on, because we shot that in 2007. It was released mm-hmm. in like 2009, 2010, maybe. Um, but as time has gone on, both of us kind of feel like it, 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 it not like it would have been a better idea necessarily, but it, that movie definitely would have withstood just saying written and directed by Eric and Rhoda at the end, mm-hmm. like kind of like the Coen brothers, just because she was helping me direct it. Yep. I was uh, working on the script with her. I would say like 93% of that script, like I didn't touch it, but I, I worked with her as an editor. I wrote probably three scenes and I like dropped little one-liners here and there. But uh, that script I think is uh, utterly a credit to her work. Like, uh, and I took a story by because I had come up with the story storyline, but um it's just like, I think it's such a brilliant piece of writing and uh, it's a very special project. And you also asked about um, bringing actors back. Like we, we have reused almost everybody from that cast once. I think there were 10 of them in the cast. And I think I've collaborated with seven of them again or thereabouts. And, uh, and, and the ones I haven't collaborated with there, the intention has been there to go again with it, with a few of them where we've had a script, but we can get the financing. And uh, mm-hmm. there's something very special about that one. And my, my perception of it was, and it, it's an interesting, interesting uh project because um it is you know it's very cheap and it's very grainy and it's uh the technology with which we shot it is obsolete now it was shot on mini dv so it was actually shot on tape with a special lens so it's interesting that it was kind of a bridge format like it's a format that's that came and went pretty quickly in terms of uh being you know uh, worthy of distribution like uh you couldn't get away with it now and nobody would want to use it but uh so it was like pre-high def but post film stock mm-hmm. and i think there was like a five to seven year window where a mini tv movie could get any kind of distribution it streamed on netflix for a year and it got you know it got a pretty good distributor but uh it's also like we always called it an art house grindhouse movie because it's like it looks very cheap and i i always feel um transparently as a director it it, it gets off to a bit of a wobbly start like i can't stand watching the first 10 minutes or so uh, but i feel it relaxes into itself and mm-hmm. uh there's just something about it that's like in, in my mind and Rhoda's mind it's like it has like an eternal quality it's just like like it like the implications and i don't think living things has the same quality although i'm proud of both of them but i think living things is much more professionally made like the production values are better yeah absolutely but, uh, uh, yeah cool thank you thank you but, <laughs> yeah so there was definitely a graduation like uh and uh, a lot of people dismiss rule of three out of hand because they're like they'll watch they'll watch the beginning they're like ah cheap grainy not feeling but like uh i do feel it coalesces and there's just something about it and it could be because i didn't write it and i have um like so much respect for Rhoda's writing there's just something about it that's like infinitely haunting and you could turn the motives like you were saying or the implications of what everybody's up to you could keep going back and re-examining that and puzzling over it yeah and i just think it's like a very deep well of energy that thing yeah and there was also 
um, you know, woo-woo sort of like new age sense. There were so many coincidences when we made that. Like uh, Rodney Eastman, who's probably the most well-known actor in it. He was from the uh, the Elm Street series, and mm-hmm. he uh, he plays Russ in Rule Three. He um, he happened to be really into the number three. Like we didn't know him before we shot it. We uh, found him on a, on an audition call. And uh, we didn't even know we were going to use him. Like, we called him back, but we had a couple options, but we, he was the best one. And um, he told us as we went, it's like, this is really weird because I'm obsessed with the number three. You have no ideas. And, the, and the, the, the number three is all over that movie. Like, there's so many ways, like, whether it's in the production design or in the writing or in the, you know, the, the number on the, on the hotel, on the motel room door. There's just so many times things are in threes, and it's just a lot of them populated spontaneously it's like ooh, another three another three like it's just it was like uh, like quantum physics it just like built itself like as an energy event and there's just something about that project that is just like um you're just incredibly special like uh and because it was a debut also it was my uh debut as a director and it was our first project as producers like you can't ever get that back like you can't ever be that right. hungry again you can't ever be that naive about it or innocent again so that it has that too yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i enjoyed it i i do think, oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I do think it's a it, it it really makes you think and i'm actually glad to hear that the screenplay was written by a woman mm-hmm. um awesome yeah you know, yeah um because like you said i mean there there are some really disturbing like moments in the movie and again like they all make sense at the they all make sense at the end like if if you look at it mm-hmm. if you can look at it through a lens of um a traumatized person right. why they would mm-hmm. be in a relationship like that like it all like began to coalesce with me as i thought yeah, about it. as i oh, thought about it afterwards i was like oh okay yeah <laughs> Oh, nice. I'm so yeah. thrilled to hear that. And also, um, it's so funny you say the lens of a traumatized person because my big notes in the cinematographer, Una, uh, her name is Una Lee, who shot it, who gave it like this, we wanted it to have like this 70s kind of look with the grain and the shadows and yeah. stuff. And uh, just like, you know, kind of like a, a, a early Paul Schrader type of movie. And she, the big thing I told her was that the, gla- the gaze of the, the camera has to always seem traumatized. Like it can't hmm. seem like warm in any way it always has to be leering even if that means putting it an inch lower than you usually would or just like giving it a slight curve that's imperceptible um so very much trauma is a huge theme of that one and um yeah definitely um we, we it's so interesting how as you get older like it's not like i wouldn't take this take chances again but i don't think i'd take the same chances i took with that because it's like yeah glacially slow at points like we bring the pacing all the way to zero at points like uh it's very much like in an art house vein that was more mm-hmm. fashionable at the time we shot it and uh definitely putting demands on the viewers patience in terms of like not not cutting as quickly as they might like or letting a scene crawl to a close but i'm glad you enjoyed it now one thing i want to know you just i think you you said you have three children how oh, I have two uh two yeah. oh okay sorry um yeah. um oh. how has writing and your creative process changed now that you have a family i'm really that's a really really good question um it's definitely um uh, well i have a friend i'll put it this way i have a friend named pete who recently has been catching up with all my books and it's not um among my friends it's never a mandate to read my stuff because especially with a book like if it's like an op-ed or something and i text it to you and then you don't read it, i'm like well that would have taken you four minutes so I, that, that might be a little <laughs> bit more of like hey can you you know, can you just give me some feedback? But uh, if it's a book, it's like, that is such a commitment. I never expect my friends to read my books, but he has been, uh, during shelter in place, uh, pandemic times, he's been reading the whole body of work, which I, I love getting his feedback. And he's a professional filmmaker. He does a lot of um, documentaries. He's quite accomplished. And his feedback is real elevated. So it's interesting when you ask that, I'm instantly thinking of uh, 
when he he wasn't reading them quite in order, but he was reading them somewhat in chronological order. And he finally has gotten to the point where all the ones he has left, which are the devoted, which is the one about the suicide cult. Mm-hmm. Oh no, he just finished that one. But there, okay, there was a point. It was devoted, and then the two he has left now are Love and Zombies and Red Dennis, which is the newest one. And those three are all post Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And okay. I got um, and he and I trade voice memos on WhatsApp. And I remember like bugging out and telling him like. I don't know how to describe it, but there, and I'll, I'll do my best in, in terms of answering your question. Like there's something post parenthood that happened to them. Um, it, it absolutely was a before and after marker. It was definitely a change, uh, but I was just real. I felt real exuberant that those were the ones he was going into. There might've been, and I'm a little embarrassed answering this way, but I know that this is part of the answer. And I know that this is true. I might've gotten a little defiant about the genre. I think, um, I had, and I, and, and I say this, I want to make very clear before I say this, I love being a father and I, I, I could not love my children more. I mean, it's like the most <laughs> exciting thing to be a father. So, so I want, like, I definitely am, am a very generic father in that sense. Like it's, it's like all the conventional stuff, but uh, there was also a, a feeling of like, and this was totally just in my own head. I don't think it was coming from anybody in the real world, but like, like I wouldn't want anybody thinking I was losing my edge as a writer. So I think I'm going to fucking hit a bit harder. Like, I, I think there's something about those three that slams so hard. And all three of them are fucked up to a degree that they weren't beforehand. Mm. And so ironically, um, the earlier books are, I think, sweeter. And I think there's more emotional variety in them. And I think these, the three I've written since being a dad are more. Um, and I was also, mind you, a dad when I did Living Things. I think they're, and this is, this is going to sound like if this was taken out of context, this would sound like abysmally terrible, but I think um, I, I started using the projects, whether it was living things of these three books to express more like anger, like they're bleaker and mm-hmm. it's just more of an outlet for that sort of thing. But it's definitely what I've experienced in my life has been kind of the opposite. Like, uh, mm-hmm. and it depends because I've been a father for nine years. So there's been shifts within that yeah. in terms of my, you know, emotions I've gone through. But uh, um, as far as my life concerns, fatherhood, it could not be more positive, but I, I think I, yeah, uh, it became a little more defined and I started uh, throwing harder. And then now it's interesting because now I'm 42. So having crossed over 40, it's like, I want to relax that a little bit because I don't want to fucking come across as like an edgelord who's being edgy in ways that would have been edgy in like 1998. But it doesn't doesn't like process right now. So it's like, um, yeah, so that's an interesting, that's an interesting dimension of working in in dark fiction. Do you feel like fans of your work have noticed that difference and have they expressed that to you in any way? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was an attitude that the devoted, which was the first one I wrote after being a father, which I think I was a father for a year when I wrote that. Oh no, wait, I actually think, no, I started writing that um, like several months in because I was on contract with a, a publisher and I owed it to them. So that was challenging in the sense. I remember I wasn't like getting as much sleep, um, but I, um, so I, ha- I think I was writing less pages per day, but I was definitely giving it my all. And uh, there was definitely an attitude among uh, the readers that this one was bonkers. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, have you lost your fucking mind? Like, uh, I was just like, and there's like, yeah, it's just like that much more vulnerable, awkward, personal, like uh, exhibitionistic in the sense that just like sharing really uncomfortable aspects of my inner life. Um, and I yeah, and love and zombies too uh, uh, was the one I referred to earlier when I said uh, the protagonist is a sex addict. Um, and he, he, him and his girlfriend in the story are, are uh, polyamorous and they're um, you know, very experimental and he's like into strippers and it takes place in Vegas and it's zombies too. So it's a zombie story. So that's also like ridiculously insane. And I think <laughs> like they all, 
they all just went to a gradient of like uh i don't think they became shrill but they became a little more um just a little more charged in that yeah. in that way yeah. yeah what is your um what is your relationship like with your um fan base do you how do you engage them like regularly on twitter social media or do you oh do yeah. You, yeah i would say you know it's interesting because um and like, like i was saying earlier with uh the milpitas beat has sort of allowed things to concentrate around mm-hmm. the journalism side of things particularly the op-ed side of things um because for a couple i mean for a couple different reasons in the sense that um it's me talking as me right yeah. so it's like it's like so it's unadorned in that way it's nonfiction. it's also me giving my opinion so that actually uh scares up reader relationships in a way that i with the fiction it's a much slower romance and courtship between mm-hmm. a writer and a reader like you'll it's like ooh, i got a fan ooh, i got a fan but with uh an op-ed you can like if you hit the right nerve suddenly it's like you get a flurry around you you know so that has really helped the uh qu- quantity wise there's more readers paying attention to that aspect of what i'm doing mm-hmm. and then the books what's been nice about it is it's also um being like a linchpin that the awareness of the books is sort of centered by the journalism uh side of things mm-hmm. um and so the, and the short answer uh or simpler answer to your question is um yeah mostly fa- it mostly is facebook I, and i um i had a, a pu- i have a private instagram where i just interact with like close friends and family i had a public instagram where i really wasn't getting any traction like it's interesting because my wife wrote a wrote a book called fierce woman she has an awesome publisher it's an awesome book it sells really really well you guys should have her on actually like she'd be a uh, she'd be a fantastic guest i like, was just thinking on. that yeah oh, awesome yeah right when it came out of my mouth i'm like that's not something you say like but um yeah I'm, I'm glad i'm glad you're open to that because she, she'd be a really fun guest but uh she has such good instagram game because her book is all about inspiring women so she puts up pictures of herself meditating in a in a forest and you know pictures of her crystals and her statues and like so it just really connects on a visual way where i couldn't really do that like my whole thing with my books and the journalism is more cerebral so the instagram was always uh dead on arrival uh but the engagement is better on facebook um which makes me feel kind of like a boomer but at least it works <laughs> um and um and yeah and, and i was actually not on facebook for two years like i was mm-hmm. uh and during that two years, I wrote Red Dennis during that period. It wasn't the whole time, but uh, that was also a lot of building the newspaper. So I, I took like a really long break. I didn't think I was ever going to go back, but in the course of wanting to promote Red Dennis, which first came out in March, I got back on. And I'm actually really glad I'm there because during the, uh, not only for the fan stuff, but also during a pandemic, it's nice to, mm-hmm. you know, be in touch with everybody you know your friends are safe and all those things i know you like disappeared and realize you disappeared and then he like yeah he like friend (laughs) he was like commenting on a mutual friend of ours and i was like wait are not your friend yeah yeah no i was like where did you go yeah yeah and that was when i was like doing a private i had like a private instagram where it was like incredibly inappropriate off-color humor it was only like 90 followers and it was like you know like yeah you know like not publicly visible and then i felt that got like seriously repetitive i was like all right i'm definitely acting like a moron of this so like on facebook it's like a bit more broad and friendly but yeah still joking around a lot yeah cool yeah. so what do you still want to accomplish as a writer it, from uh, my pers- really- from my perspective you've done yeah. it all <laughs> You can hang. Oh, thank you for saying that. Oh my God, that's music. Thank you for saying that because uh, <laughs> you kind of set you you set up my answer in the sense that uh, um, now that I've written a novel, like it was always novellas because of the ghostwriting schedule was so demanding. Yeah. I would always have to grab like two weeks out of the year to do. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do another novella. It wasn't every year. Sometimes it'd be a script. I tried annually to write something of my own. Oftentimes it ended ended up being a script that wasn't produced. But we got a couple of the scripts made. But um, the uh. 
I, now that Red Dennis is a proper novel, it's like 70,000 words as opposed to the novellas, which are 25,000. Yeah. Um, it's so crazy because when I started writing, I was like, ooh, I'm not a ghostwriter anymore. Like, you know, we're still working on the newspaper every day. But I finally had time in my schedule to work on a long form piece of fiction that I could sustain like over the course of months and daydream about it. And with all that ghostwriting pressure, that was impossible, like carrying all the clients stuff in my mind. So that was a big privilege. And when I started that process, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to write 10 novels. You know, it's like that. Yeah. And then when I finished it, I was like, wait, why would I have to ever write another novel? Like that's like, it is incredibly difficult. Like it's the, the amount of exertion and, uh, and especially like with what I was talking about before in terms of wanting to keep it really fast. Like it's one thing to do that across a hundred pages of a novella where you can set it all in one day and just, you know, it starts in the morning and ends at night and you keep this scenario real agitated and intense. But uh, across 300 pages, it's different. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a much more staggering challenge. And uh, yeah. I feel at this moment, it's just, it's really about the newspaper. Um, it's really about building, continuing to grow that company and build it. And uh, even just do less on the writing side and just more work with the reporters we have working for us. And uh, just, you know, I, I edit every story that goes out. I enjoy doing that. And that's a lighter aesthetic uh, a commitment but um at this point yeah definitely uh, enough burnout from the ghostwriting like it was like the ghostwriting was such a burnout i got liberation from that i was able to do a, you know a proper novel and i also wrote a full length uh a book about writing which is called ask plus seat which oh. we actually uh, we released it on amazon but we haven't started marketing it yet but okay. um so i wrote i wrote those two books like i, I was like oh liberation i these two books like i i got them out of my system i worked really hard on them and th now it's like all right that's kind of like, why would I have to do like five of those? Like, why would I have to keep yeah. like, like in, in, in some way that can diminish the value? So is it, at this point, it's, it's all the journalism. Is it a book on how to write, like the craft of writing? Um, it's more like inspiration. It's more like um, uh, tips to stop procrastinating. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh, one, thank you. Yeah. one of my favorite yeah. King books is on writing. Like, I love oh, no that question book. About it. I think that's in his yeah. top 10 for sure. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, it I really want to. I just have to just really. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. This conversation that's happening behind, uh, behind you both, uh, yeah. with Space Unicorn over here, yeah. she's asking for another book. Speaking of right. No. Oh. <laughs> uh, so your children, your children have uh, um, pseudonyms also. Yes. Yes. They okay. they they, they, they periodically appear on the podcast. With yes. us. I, it's funny because I wasn't looking at my phone for a while. I looked up. I was like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> oh, so one thing I want to ask, and I and I've. I've taken to asking all of our guests this question. Um, sure. Have you ever experienced something you can't explain? It could be supernatural. It could be Ooh, yeah. otherwise. I mean, um, quite, quite a number. Do you want me to just choose one? Sure. Whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Whatever you yeah, want to yeah. say. I've definitely had a good amount. It's funny because I've never... Uh, and it's not like I'm breaking some sort of policy or anything by getting into this. I, I never, I have a policy to never post about this stuff on social media because I feel like what would happen is, is it would be, it would, I would end up walking away remembering the post and the engagement and the comments and the reaction to it, and it would replace the story in my memory. So like I sort of, and, and also now this also ties into mental illness too because it's because I'm out with the fact that I've experienced mental illness. Um, whenever I share stuff like this. I just automatically assume a certain percentage of the people hearing and not you guys are going to assume that it's like, Oh, cause he's crazy. You know what I mean? But, uh, so, so, but I've definitely had, uh, I'll tell you one specific story, but in addition to the one I'm going to tell you, I have had unbelievable amounts of encounters with people that have died. Mm. And that is across my entire uh, birth family. Um, 
I think there's a bit of a psychic thing going on that's very concentrated with my with my mother, who's extremely psychic, like who can always tell you what's going to happen, and she's almost always right. Like to the point where the times when she's been wrong, like like I, I remember them, and I think about it for like two years afterwards. I'm like, I can't believe she missed that one because her her batting average is so insanely good. So, um, and definitely experiences with people that have passed. Uh, um interacting whether it's moving objects or um or or giving messages and a lot of stuff like that but the, but the story i'll tell you which is which lives in a whole other space is uh and it, it involves new jersey where at least jen and i are from mm-hmm. i don't know are, are we all from jersey or not no. no i'm from i'm from uh around the boston area yeah yeah around the boston area yep. okay got it. so we were in um rural jersey near the home where i grew up which is like the southern tip of uh Manalapin, where I know Jen from, uh, like uh, near a town called Freehold. And my yep. wife and I were, is this like pre-parenthood, driving around. And uh, it's so crazy because if you had not asked the question, like years go by and we don't think about this. Like if the topic comes up, we think about it. We look in the sky and we see a chunky, full dimensional, vivid, tangible thing that looks like a flying saucer. Like it's not, it's not um, like far away where it's like a weird light or something like that. Mm-hmm. It is an utterly, it's like right there, horizontal, dish shaped. Like what the fuck is that? <laughs> we turned ahead, faced ahead, stopped talking about it, stopped thinking about it, and yeah. didn't remember it for a couple of years. Oh and we were God. both there. We both had the same arc of seeing it, agreeing it was there, and then a little later, like around the corner, like like time had gone by. Uh, yeah. I don't know which one of us brought it up. It might have been her. She was like, wait, do you know? I was like, yeah, why did we talk about that? So you know that dot, 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 like the implication is yeah. perhaps, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. we experienced missing time missing and time. something, yeah. something uh, weird. had us for a while. Yeah. In yeah. Freehold? That's crazy. In Freehold. Yeah, it was insane. It was, And I remember as, as I'm talking to you right now, I remember what it looked like. But then that was it. And then we were like, oh, there's no need to talk about that. And then we huh. just, just kept driving. Like, uh, it was completely crazy. So, I yeah. thought we were going to get a Jersey Devil sighting. <laughs> yeah, no. The Pine Barrens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm super into cryptids. So cryptids, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fishing for a guest who will tell me they think they've seen a Sasquatch. Oh, yeah, he's obsessed. Oh, nice. You'll get there. He's You'll obsessed get there. with yeah. Bigfoot. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really cool one, the Bigfoot stuff. That is, it's really creepy. And uh, I will say, we didn't talk at all. We didn't mention until just now that we went to high school together and that's yeah, how we know yeah, each other. Yeah. Yeah. But we never talked yeah. about it. But what I remember most about you and the group of um, group of guys that you hung out with was like all of your obsession with film at the time so i just i oh, love wow. that you know that you've made films and everything like that i mean i think it's oh great. thank you so much oh that's awesome i'm th- it's so funny because something my wife and i always talk about is like you never know what somebody remembers about you like yeah. you never know what their their touchstones are and that's kind of weird and unstable yeah um yeah i remember you and i took i can't remember her name i think you and i were in a poetry class together or something and the teacher's name began with r is this ring any bells we were in a poetry class together. Yeah, I think we did take one class together. That was like. Do you uh, know a- that Sawtooth Frank and I met at the UMass Poetry Society? We did. Oh, <laughs> nice. There you go. Okay. <laughs> That's how we met. So maybe, maybe I'm just psychically like reading how maybe. you Maybe. Like, no, no. Yeah, we yeah. might have been in a poetry class. I remember more I vividly. We I think we were all yeah. in that uh, Mr. Nucio's Western Civ class together. Oh, I, you know, I was the only one who wasn't because the. Uh, oh, were you uh, not in that in one? Junior and senior year. Yeah, but I know Stu and Ian, all those yeah, guys were in that class. Stu yeah. and Ian. But I, I like. Kevin. Took it vicariously. And Kevin, Jeremy. Yeah. And I know I, st- oh, I don't right. want I so want to know what happened to Jeremy. 
Jeff, oh, I can tell Facebook you what happened, planet. Jeremy, but you'll have to turn the uh, off offline. All right, we'll talk about you. <laughs> yeah. right, one one last question: yeah. do, What yeah. what um what do you miss most about New Jersey? Because you've been in California oh. for a while. Yeah, you know what I miss is um uh, you know there's so much I miss about it. I I really do like it. I've I, it's been a weird relationship. Sometimes I've gone, I've been like, wow, I can't believe I was from here and i don't miss this at all but more times than not i've gone and been like wow this is the best especially when i bring my kids i'm like yeah. as soon as we're like we're in the rental car from the airport and we're on the jersey roads i'm like this is the best these are the best people i'm bragging and everything but um i really like i gotta tell you um and this is jersey but it's also the east coast in general um just the directness with which with, with which people communicate um because that is not uh normative on the west coast it's like hmm. a different country like la people are a bit softer a good degree softer up here in the bay area i would say people are way more sensitive uh gentle and that has its pluses too but not when you're trying to get to the point like you don't want to have three lunches about something you're like uh, i'm the sort of person like you know like 10 seconds into the phone call i'll get right into the agenda and it's like uh you know i, I i'm also active on our uh Chamber of Commerce in Milpitas, which is like one of the ways we've used to be involved through the newspaper. And I'm some a board member on the chamber and uh, every, and I like it. I like how they make fun of me. I think it's funny, but they all make fun of me for how fast I talk. Like it's uh, <laughs> so just like, uh, it's just like how much I like, I drive the conversation to its inevitable conclusion. I'm like, all right. Right. So like, kind of like, what's the point? Like, uh, so that, that is, that is a bit of a culture shock thing. Like I've been in the Bay area for almost five years and, uh, yeah. and it's, uh, it's still something I'm getting used to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for your time with us. Is there anything you want to tell us? Anything you want to promote? Anything you want to let us know no, about? No, all good. No, I just want to thank you back. I've really had a lot of fun. And uh, Red Dennis is the main one I'm pushing at the moment. It's my novel. All right, okay. people. So we'll, we'll put a link. You hear, you hear Eric Shapiro. Yeah. Get Red Dennis. Read it. Yep. Okay. Um, and we want to thank him again and if you're in california yep near i have to write i have to look at milpitas yep (laughs) (laughs) make sure you read your local paper support local journalism yep it's online too check it out there yep i checked it out online today okay so so eric shapiro author director milpitas beat creative director and contributor op-ed writer he really, you Thank he, you so he much. does it all. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed our conversation with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Likewise. And be well, and yes. hopefully you'll come back, and we'll get your partner on here, um, Rhoda, at some point. We'll yeah, set, any, we'll set any, that any up. Yeah, for either of us. I love it. I had a blast. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Take care. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep, bye. Hit the button. Well, that was amazingly oh, fun, wasn't it? I thought you were going hit the button. Hit what button? The button. We're still recording. Oh. We didn't finish the show. We didn't finish the show. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that conversation. I, I was super into it. I know you were. You could have talked to him for another I know. hour. <laughs> I, I know. I, I didn't I didn't want to take advantage, especially, you know, mm-hmm. since I think we got a little more time mm-hmm. out of Eric yeah. than yeah. he maybe initially felt comfortable with. But yeah. what a what a stellar conversationalist. I mean, I really loved hearing about um his process and his ideas and what yeah. do you think yeah 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 say something good about my interviewing you please. did great he he said every two seconds that you had great questions you just want you're such a narcissist <laughs>
<laughs> and we didn't even talk about when we all went to New York City and we saw Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins. Who? Eric and I and oh, really? guys that we hung out with. <laughs> all right, Stomping Jen, I have to ask the question. <laughs> yeah? How are we entertaining ourselves? I don't know. We watched Eric's stuff last night. That's pretty cool. Oh, I have a huge recommendation. Yeah. How are we entertaining ourselves? Go ahead. You didn't watch any of this because you were very busy with a home improvement project. But Space Unicorn and I, and we roped yeah. Ted, Tyranno Ted. What is his yeah. name? Tyranno Ted. Tyranno Ted. Uh, we you watched... tell this. I'll be right back. I have to pee really oh bad. So we binge watched the entire two seasons of Kipo and the Wilder, the Age of the Wilderbeast. Space Unicorn and I enjoyed it from the very beginning. Um, it's truly an amazing TV show. Um, I had heard about it, and I didn't really know very much about it, so we turned it on. Um, and the animation is incredible. The storylines are really fun. Um, every episode, they're short, and they really kind of like hook you right in. Um, and... Did I mention that the music is incredible? It's very reminiscent. I think the musical director was the same one who did um, Spider-Man, uh, the multiverse one, the animated one, um, which I really loved, and I love the music for that as well. Um, so it's really excellent. You can watch it with your kids. Um, Sawtooth is not back. Uh, here he is uh, coming back. Oh, with Space, with Space Unicorn. Unicorn. Space Unicorn, do you want to talk about Kipo? Come over here, Space Unicorn. Here. Why don't you explain to our listeners, Space Unicorn, why you felt the need to interrupt uh -huh. our interview? I'm telling our viewers, I mean, I'm telling our listeners yeah. right now about Kipo. Talking talking so, to my microphone. Space Unicorn and I watch Kipo, and we liked it. What do you have to say about Kipo? I don't know. This is your chat right here, right up front. I don't know. What did you like about it? What was your, what did, was there anything special about it that you liked? Um, I like the storyline, mm -hmm. I guess. I really like the music. Oh, yeah, that was really good. And I like the animals in it. Because, like, the main, like, villainous evil creature was what? Wasn't really a villain, though, right? What was the scariest creature in the entire show? I don't know. They weren't. The they... Mega Bunnies. No. They weren't scary? No. No. Okay. What did you think was scary? Nothing. What did you think was good about it? No. Space Unicorn, why don't you tell our listeners why you interrupted us in the middle of an oh interview? What did you want to, what did you want to tell us? She wanted a book. I wanted a book. I told her I had a secret stash of books I bought her and I've been doling them out. Now was it worth was it worth interrupting an interview to ask for a book? No. No. You get the sound of disapproval. What should the con what what should the consequence be, Space Unicorn? Um, I don't know. A beating. Sure. Okay, you ready? Sure. That hurt. Okay, you're dismissed. Go to bed. Say good night to our listeners, please. They love you. Good night, everyone. Good night, Space Unicorn. We love you. And we love you. Who? Listeners. Listeners, right. Yes, because you missed my whole entire, like, you recommend about you, Kipo. You recommended something. Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts.
Peepo in the Age Peepo. of the Wonder Beasts. K-I-P-O. Got it. Um, I also want to recommend Hamilton. You only watched the first half. How dare you? I want to recommend the first half of Hamilton. <laughs> Maybe the second half stinks. Up until the intermission. I thought it was fabulous. I loved it. Great. I haven't watched it. No? No. Okay. Well, what else, Stomping Jen? Is there anything else we want to cover that we want to talk about? We took the pod dog for the first time in a kayak this last weekend. I think our listeners are now shutting us off. No, they're not. This is, <laughs> this is mean, why they're tuning in. This is why they're tuning in to hear me. <laughs> talk about the dog. No, they're not tuning in to hear me. They're tuning in to hear our guest. Mm-hmm. But I like to pretend people are tuning in to hear me. Yes, I know. All right, so you don't want to talk about anything else. You want to end the podcast. No, I mean, I just, how long has it been? It's been an hour and 23 minutes. Okay, I think that's an adequate amount of time How for a dare podcast. you? People need more of me, don't you think? I need more of you. On the couch, we could watch more TV so we could talk to them about what we've watched over the week. Say that again. Say you need more of me, please. <laughs> but say it sultrier. Oh, my God. Please, go ahead. I have I'm to waiting. also pee. You got to pee, and now I have to pee. No, I need to hear it. Tell me again. Tell me. Say, hold on. I got to put on something. Say, oh my God. Um, okay, tell me you need more of me. Go ahead. You know that this is not the music for that. No. Um, how about this? Okay. Tell me you need this more of me. Even worse. Please. Okay, how about this? The hell is this? Tell me you need more of me in an Irish accent, Stumpin' Jen. Say, Sawtooth, I want to dig into your pot of gold. I want to follow your rainbow. I want to lay with you in a field of clover. I want to. Did I mention I have to pee? I want to pee. I see you don't care at all. As I roll with you in a field of clover. Sawtooth rank. <laughs> I want to lay with you. No? No. I'm not letting you go. Why? Because I'll never let you go. Stomping Jen. All right, you don't want to be on this podcast down. anymore. Fine. Never you're gonna no turn fun. I'm going to call another guest who wants to talk with me. Oh, yeah, you're going to call somebody else? There's no one Are to you going to podcast cheat on me? All right, people. Now, listen, I want to say once again thank you to our guest, author, director, creative content director of the Milpitist Beat. You just added a T. I can't speak. I don't know how to say things Milpitas. right. Milpitas. Milpitas. <laughs> beat. Milpitas beat. Yeah. Eric Shapiro. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. I learned a lot. Uh-huh. Really appreciate it. Yeah. To our listeners. Now, we're talking directly to you. You're never peeing, stomping, Jen. To our listeners, we love you. You are the reason we're doing this. I appreciate every download, every subscription, every like. Mm -hmm. We want to talk to you. Listen. Yeah. 
If some, you want to talk to us, some of you out there up. are interesting. And if you're not, I will make you interesting. I will ask you good questions. Sawtooth will shine his light on you. Believe me, Stomping Jen. So listeners, we love you. You are the reason we continue to do this. Remember to wear a mask. Wear a fucking mask, please. And Go ahead, Stomping Jen. Leash your dog. Leash your dog. Because I got attacked by a dog today, Stomping Jen. The sixth dog attack of the season. Should I tell that story? No. Do you have to pee? I do have to pee. So listen, listeners. Once again, thank you. Subscribe, download, leave a review. We love you. Without further ado, what do we say, Stomping Jen? Bye now. Bye now. Bye now.